Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, George Dash and the 1942 Nazi U-boat invasion of America. Now let's return to our story about George Dash. Unlike their military counterparts, the New York FBI office clearly understood the ramifications of the current situation. J. Edgar Hoover was immediately notified of the mysterious landing, and he acted predictably. As FDR had already designated the FBI to lead any domestic sabotage investigations, the first thing the FBI did was confiscate any materials recovered from the beach by the Coast Guard. An FBI team of explosive experts was already examining and cataloging the Nazi cache of demolition materials. Because the neurotically suspicious FBI director had received information via the Coast Guard, he first wished to verify if in fact he was dealing with Nazis or something less sinister, like alcohol smugglers from Canada who used remote parts of Long Island to run untaxed liquor into the country. Hadn't Cullen admitted receiving money from the alleged spies? Perhaps he only got cold feet when he figured explosives were involved, and he might eventually be caught up in something far worse. Hoover did not wish to be even the private face of the investigation, so he designated one of his most trusted lieutenants to handle the process. This individual was Eugene Conley, an assistant director and a direct report to Hoover. Under Hoover's guidance, Conley's first efforts were to isolate and interrogate John Cullen to determine if his story rang true. Because they had no idea where the saboteurs went and couldn't assume that they had even left the area, the bulk of FBI manpower staked out the beach, assuming that whoever left the explosives intended to come back. It would be days before an agent was able to ascertain that four men had boarded the train to Manhattan and were most likely now far away from the sand dunes that the FBI had under intensive surveillance. Despite a lengthy and repetitive grilling, Cullen also stuck to his story. The FBI grudgingly aware that a team of Nazi spies were loose in the United States and the FBI had no idea where they were. On Sunday morning, Dash invited Berger to his room for breakfast. Afterwards, he dramatically announced to Berger that if they couldn't agree on a course of action, one of them would wind up being tossed out of the window. Berger, by now used to Dash's histrionic behavior, calmly replied that he did not think that that would be necessary. Dash then launched into a lengthy autobiography, starting with his World War I military experience and ending with his immediate disillusion upon returning to Germany. This detailed diatribe meant to underscore Dash's claim that he had no intention of carrying out the mission's orders and his desire to work with the U.S. government to advise them on the ineffectiveness of their propaganda and to help them design much more persuasive rhetoric. Berger responded with his own lengthy recitation of his experience as a street brawler in the early 20s, a member of the SA hierarchy lucky to escape liquidation during the Night of the Long Knives and his subsequent incarceration. He concluded his comments by saying that he never had any intention of carrying out his orders and to add credibility to this statement, informed his partner that he had left behind a German cigarette pack, a German brandy bottle, swim trunks, and a vest. At the conclusion of this emotional interaction, the two men literally embraced each other. But what to do next? Caput intimidated them all into thinking that any FBI office in a major city was under observation of the Gestapo, a ridiculous notion only believable by those who had actually experienced the paranoia generated by the Gestapo in Germany. They decided to call the New York FBI office and inform them of Dash's desire to travel to Washington to speak directly to J. Edgar Hoover. 
Having already missed their 1 p.m. meeting with Hank and Quirin, they had to hustle to get to Grant's tomb by 6 o'clock. Although 20 minutes late, their partners were still there, but they were angry and threatening to leave New York without Dash and Berger. The team leader got them to calm down, used the excuse of contacting sympathetic Germans and diligently making sure that the saboteur's identity papers were up to date and at least got them to agree to a meeting on Tuesday morning at the 34th Street Automat. But when Dash asked Quirin where they were staying, he was told they were at the Chesterfield, which Dash knew to be a lie. He had tried to reach the two earlier that day to let them know they would be late, and even knowing their aliases, was told no such parties had ever registered there. For his part, Dash lied about his hotel location as well. After Hank and Quirin wandered off, Dash and Berger headed back to Midtown, intent on finding a phone booth. Dash picked up the phone and, using a number retrieved from the telephone book, called the FBI's New York office. After stating his reason for calling several times, he was ultimately referred to the individual assigned to the desk that dealt with the various cranks and mentally unstable individuals who frequently contacted the Bureau demanding to meet at the highest levels to discuss bizarre allegations and assertions. This agent, Dean McWhorter, later officially recorded the details of a caller named Franz Daniel Pastorius, who claimed to have arrived from Europe the previous day with information so sensitive that he could only discuss it personally with J. Edgar Hoover. Having heard such entreaties on numerous occasions, McWhorter responded by explaining that there were many agents in the New York office more than capable of determining the importance of the caller's information and that a local interview could be set up immediately. Predictably, Dash was not interested in such a proposition. He told the agent to contact Washington to inform them that he would be heading to the Capitol to meet in person on the upcoming Thursday or Friday. He gave a physical description, including the streak in his hair, and even demanded that the agent read back the message and description. After McWhorter hung up the phone, he forwarded his report to the office's file room, where it was deemed insignificant and stowed with the numerous reams of paper that was generated by any huge bureaucracy. Ernest Berger subsequently described George Dash's demeanor during the specific time period as that of a man on the verge of a nervous breakdown. And, based on how he spent the next five days, he certainly behaved like someone completely detached from reality. Promptly at 9 p.m. on Monday evening, without even telling Berger, George Dash decided to visit Mayer's, a private waiters club in Midtown. When Dash, a regular while working and living in New York, walked through the doors, other members were shocked to see him. In his haste to leave for San Francisco, Dash had told acquaintances that he was headed to Russia. Some suspected his true destination, but either country was next to impossible to leave. No matter, Dash proceeded to prompt the usual pinochle game amongst his former peer group, flashing money, betting large sums, making cryptic comments about never having to work again, and having $80,000 to spend. Sailing completely through Tuesday's 11 a.m. automat appointment, Dash seemed caught up in some euphoric binge, tipping handsomely and taking care of former co-workers' tabs. He played all through Tuesday night, not even pausing to contact any of his fellow saboteurs. Finally, at 8 a.m. on Wednesday, he called it quits, giving away most of the $250 he'd won. Answering questions about how he escaped from Russia to New York, he initially gave cryptic answers, but got more grandiose as time passed, finally telling the club manager that he needed to go to Washington to meet with J. Edgar Hoover. Upon returning to his hotel room, he was confronted by Berger, who had found it necessary to placate the other irate saboteurs with more shopping. He nonchalantly informed his partner that he was tired, needed to sleep, and he left it to Berger to figure out how to keep Hank and Quirin occupied. Without much choice, Berger met the other pair at their new residence, a modest brownstone rooming house. After hearing of Dash's pinochle orgy, Hank and Quirin were so disgusted that they decided to ignore Dash's bund embargo and headed to Queens to meet with one of Hank's best friends, a German by the name of Herman Fay. After dinner provided by Fay's wife and copious amounts of alcohol, Hank finally honestly explained how he had returned from Germany, entrusted his host with his money belt minus several hundred dollars spending money, and said that they both would be in touch. On Thursday morning, Dash had determined that his best course of action was to go to Washington and speak with the FBI directly. 
Presuming that it would be better for him if he voluntarily approached the Bureau before he was arrested, he met Berger for breakfast and informed him of his course of action. Dash then completed various errands, including counting out exactly how much money he had, $82,350 in total, again the equivalent of approximately $1 million today. He did not personally say goodbye to Berger, but left him a note saying he had left for Washington, would clear things up, and wished him and the others well. He concluded by saying he would contact Berger, especially if he had any extraordinary news. Dash's train arrived late on Thursday. At the same time, Berger, having discovered a top-shelf cabaret, got Quirin to join him for the evening. Hank, having lived in New York and nervous about being recognized by any former acquaintances, preferred to stay at the boarding house. Berger and Quirin left him behind, drank heavily, met some women, and stumbled home to Berger's hotel at 3 a.m. Quirin was so intoxicated that he spent the night in Berger's room on a spare bed. Hank's paranoia at being recognized was not so far-fetched. When Dash went out for dinner in D.C., after checking into his hotel, he actually ran into a waiter he knew from the Waiters Club in New York. He first feigned that he didn't know the man, but then decided that he would like to have a drink with someone he knew. After the waiter got off duty, they repaired to a local bar, and Dash got predictably loquacious. His stories about having some special status and involvement in espionage missions becoming more grandiose by the minute. They called in a night at midnight, and the waiter went home and told the whole story to his roommate. It seemed like whiskey talk and bragging, except that Dash, previously always short on money, was wearing a quality suit and had plenty of cash. Both men finally decided that Dash had fallen into some money and was on a binge of some kind. On the eastern coast of Florida, Curling's team enjoyed a much less eventful landing on the night of June 16th, and their subsequent foray into the interior of the United States was also unremarkable. Curling and Teal were eventually bound for New York, Neubauer and Haupt for Chicago. Although Cap had forbade Haupt from that location and a reunion with his family, Herbie was having none of it. Reasoning that Haupt might be more loyal and controllable if he had plenty of money, Curling gave him an additional $10,000 and hoped for the best. The general plan was to meet in Cincinnati two days after Curling's July 4th meetup with Dash in the same city, and then Curling and Haupt would return to Florida to retrieve the explosives. As Curling's team made their way north, George Dash was attempting to ensure that their plans would never be carried out. But early on Friday, June 19th, sitting in his hotel room, he was so scattered that he still had no specific plan as to who exactly he would attempt to meet with to discuss Operation Pastorius. Thinking that it might be best to seek guidance from a government agency, he first telephoned the U.S. Government Information Service, explained that he had information of military value, and asked who he should speak with. Without hesitation, the operator responded with a specific contact and direct line to an officer on the Army General Staff. Relieved, Dash placed a call to the officer, but this individual, Colonel H.F. Kramer, was not in. Dash left a message and a secretary promised a return call when the colonel showed up. Dash's impatience got the better of him, and within 30 minutes he was on the phone to the FBI, explaining that he... Franz Pastorius had arrived in Washington to meet with the FBI as discussed with the New York office and that he would like to meet with J. Edgar Hoover. He was predictably transferred several times and about to hang up in frustration when his call wound up at the desk of Dwayne Trainer, the head of the Bureau's anti-sabotage unit. Dash again asked if Trainer was familiar with his New York FBI request and also gave some general details of who he was and his involvement in the German sabotage effort. Trainer immediately dismissed him as a jokester or nut, but he decided to call his bluff and inquired as to where he was at the moment. When Dash gave him his room number at the Hotel Mayflower, Trainer dispatched an agent to the location, presuming that nothing would come of it. When Dash was delivered to Trainer's office just a few minutes later, the agent was surprised but even more skeptical after hearing tales of explosives, U-boats, factory bombings, and Nazis. Dash's propensity to wave his arms while speaking excitedly also did little to establish his veracity. Trainer asked his boss, Milton Mickey Ladd, an assistant director, to sit in on the meeting, and Dash, sensing that both men were skeptical, became even more emphatic, claiming that he had brought enough explosives from Germany to blow up the Empire State Building, Macy's department store, and various other landmarks. 
Both Trainer and Ladd began to wonder if Dash might actually be dangerously psychotic, but one thing struck Ladd as odd. Within the upper echelons of the Bureau, information about the landing had circulated. Hoover had given explicit orders to all concerned that no mention of the potential Nazi sabotage effort was to be publicly discussed, especially with media, for reasons that will become evident. If the public had no knowledge of the landing on Long Island, how did Dash know about it? Dash rattled on that he was like William Siebold, coming forward to work with the FBI to fight the Nazi regime. The mere mention of Siebold had the two FBI men leaning forward with actual enthusiasm. For additional emphasis, Dash suddenly reached for his briefcase, opened it up completely, and let the contents, over $80,000 in $50 bills, spill all over Trainer's desk. Do you believe me now? Dash was practically screaming. Stunned, the two investigators briefly examined the bills and quickly came to the same conclusion. Ladd told Trainer to lock his office door. Back in New York, Berger continued his attempts to assuage and distract Quirin and Hank, which on Friday meant a visit to a brothel. Arranged by a woman Berger met at the cabaret on Wednesday, all three men enjoyed themselves until three o'clock in the morning. They agreed to meet the following late Saturday afternoon for more shopping, and Berger did not even leave his hotel until after two. He made his way to a clothing store where he waited for his two Confederates who arrived shortly thereafter. They collected some clothes they had previously purchased, had a meal, and then again split up. Berger back to his room, and Hank and Quirin wondering how they would spend the rest of the weekend, heading back towards their rooming house. Unfortunately for them, an FBI tail had followed Berger to the clothing store and observed the meeting there and coordinated an arrest of all three men by early evening. How had the FBI suddenly located the saboteurs? As soon as Trainer was able to arrange it, a stenographer was brought to his office, and Dash began a marathon session in which he eventually revealed Berger's exact hotel location, early enough to alert the FBI in New York to begin surveillance. Dash's many digressions and histrionics were annoying, but Trainer tolerated them, wanting to ingratiate himself with Dash and get the German to believe that they were colleagues. His statement was so lengthy and detailed that additional stenographers had to be summoned in a round-the-clock effort. For 14 hours, Dash sang like a bird about every aspect of Operation Pastorius. Eventually, he was permitted to return to his hotel, accompanied by trainer who slept in the same room, other agents poised in the vicinity. It was decided that Dash would not be tossed into a cell or even arrested, not yet anyway. Keep him talking and thinking that he was part of the team. The contents of Dash's room was meticulously searched, the most interesting item, even more money, stuffed into manila envelopes. Kept aware of Dash's FBI interaction every step of the way, J. Edgar Hoover immediately ordered agents dispatched to New York with a photo of Dash to see if John Cullen could identify it from a photo lineup. Although it was not definitive, Cullen picked Dash's photo out of 21 others and tentatively stated that this was the man on the beach. Dash's ongoing confession also alerted the FBI to the second sabotage team that landed in Florida. Hout made it to Chicago early on Friday. Neubauer arrived in the same city on Thursday, curling and teal destined for New York on Sunday. Although Haupt was stupidly returning to Chicago, he at least had the sense to go to an uncle's house, a man by the name of Walter Frayling. While his relatives were stunned to see him, they wondered out loud why he had not gone to his parents' home. Herbie told him that he did not want to have his mother collapse in a state of shock, but this was probably a lie meant to avoid any law enforcement who might be watching the house. When his parents did arrive, they were initially shocked and overjoyed, alarmed by their son's description of his global odyssey, and ultimately terrified when he backed up his story of German intelligence work, including a U-boat arrival by producing his money belt containing thousands of dollars. He asked his uncle to hide much of the money, and Frayling complied. Ultimately, the Haupts drove their son home late that night. Coincidentally, the FBI was already looking for Haupt concerning his non-registration for the draft. And Haupt's father, already concerned that his family was about to become involved in a potentially disastrous criminal situation, insisted that his son go to the local FBI office to, at the very least, discuss the matter. Dash already had alerted the FBI to the likelihood that Haupt would return to Chicago, and it was only their initial lack of an organized surveillance and Haupt's erratic late-night schedule that allowed him to avoid detection. 
even if they hadn't been able to begin surveillance of Haupt over the weekend, he certainly made their investigation much simpler by walking into FBI headquarters on Monday to discuss his problems with the draft board. He simply stated that he had been out of the country for a year in Mexico and had recently returned. The agent who interviewed him seemed satisfied when Haupt agreed that if drafted, he would fight in the armed service and he was free to go. To Haupt, this was an indication that his plan to merely disappear into the heartland was viable and that he was still not under any suspicion. However, by the time he returned home to his parents' house, numerous FBI agents were engaged in an operation that encompassed the entire neighborhood. Edward Curling's desire to travel to New York revolved around his currently complicated domestic situation. Curling officially had a wife, Marie, but he also had a mistress named Hetty Engerman. Although his wife knew of the relationship and even encouraged him to get a divorce, as she was involved with another man as well, Curling was torn. He hoped to resolve the situation as quickly as possible. Blowing up buildings and factories was the furthest thing from his mind. To that end, as soon as he and Werner Thiel registered at the Commodore Hotel on Sunday, May 19th, they then got on the subway and headed to Astoria, Queens, to locate a close friend and like-minded German named Helmut Leiner. Curling had no idea where either of his love interests might currently be living, but figured Liner might. Not wanting to go directly to Liner's home, where his friend's parents would recognize him, Curling had Teal approach Liner on the street. All three then went back into the city, where they had dinner and drinks, Liner updating Curling on both women and agreeing to contact them on Curling's behalf. Unfortunately, as Dash's interrogation marathon proceeded, he provided the FBI with his invisibly coated handkerchief, the name and address of Helmut Liner inscribed as one of the individuals listed. After placing the cloth over ammonia fumes, this information became clearly visible. Another name on the handkerchief was Walter Frayling, Herbie Haupt's uncle. Both addresses were quickly placed under FBI surveillance. At FBI headquarters, J. Edgar Hoover was impatient with the pace of the investigation of the Florida team of saboteurs. Hoover had sworn all Bureau members to secrecy regarding the investigation and deliberately told the press nothing. He hoped to reveal to the American people that he and the FBI were responsible for a remarkably brave and sophisticated process that had saved the country from a tremendous threat and that the FBI was the only American governmental agency capable of such a deed. Hoover and the FBI were involved in a bit of a public relations lull bolstered by his choreographed mid-30s apprehensions of such high-profile criminals as John Dillinger and Machine Gun Kelly, Hoover had become a nationally prominent figure. Despite the wildly successful Seabold arrests, Hoover personally was criticized by various politicians for drawing up an enemies list, aggressively arresting political dissidents on trumped-up charges that were thrown out by the courts, and especially for Hoover's personal penchant for hanging out in expensive New York and Washington nightclubs. Hoover so frequently attended New York's glitzy Stork Club that one congressman dubbed him as a Stork Club detective, who especially during wartime should spend more time protecting the nation and less time publicly carousing. Pathologically concerned with his image, Hoover was infuriated by this nickname and was looking for an opportunity to grab some positive publicity. His initial approach to the Pastorius investigation was the result of his desire to manipulate the story and gain as much credit as possible. Hoover immediately sent President Roosevelt a memo discussing his personal involvement with interrogating the saboteurs currently under arrest, greatly overstating the U-boat landings as an ongoing threat to America. Hoover also left out the circumstances surrounding the apprehension of the first four Germans. Neglecting to explain to FDR that the Bureau was tipped off by a babbling neurotic who walked into FBI headquarters, an individual who probably would have had difficulty lighting the candles on a birthday cake, much less destroying factories and bridges. So far, Hoover's luck had held. No other government agency had gotten the jump on him, and no newspaper had gotten a scoop. But the director knew that couldn't last forever. He sent Conley to Chicago to wrap up the investigation as quickly as possible. On Monday, back in New York, Eddie Curling was pouring his heart out to Hetty Engeman over dinner after Liner convinced her to leave the grocery store she operated and accompany him for a big surprise meeting in Central Park. 
During their night together, Curling suggested to Hetty that he should buy a car and go on a trip down the east coast of Florida via Cincinnati. Perhaps Curling still intended to meet up with Dash on July 4th and retrieve the explosives with his mistress in tow to provide additional entertainment. Hetty liked the idea, her only concern getting someone to operate her business in her absence. The next day, Curling got a shock when a New York tabloid news story indicated that FBI agents were combing the state of Florida looking for Nazi saboteurs deposited by submarine. Both Teal and he agreed that certainly in the short run, any return to Florida was impossible. Curling met Liner again in the city that Tuesday night. His friend was going to be instrumental in coordinating a meeting with Curling's wife, Marie. Curling told Liner to round up the two women, who actually were on good terms with each other, and meet him for dinner at about 10.30 in Midtown Manhattan. He and Teal were going to have a few drinks with a former Bund member before he ultimately caught up with Liner and the girls. Liner had Marie Curling meet him at Hetty's grocery store, although he had to tell her why. Marie agreed to go to the restaurant, but even after Hetty claimed to have seen Curling twice the previous day, she was still skeptical. They proceeded to the restaurant where they waited for an hour and a half. A very upset Marie finally left at about midnight. Unfortunately, the FBI had disrupted everyone's dinner plans when, after tailing Liner and spotting someone who fit Curling's description, they followed Curling to his early evening bar meeting with Werner Teal. Teal was already there with his buddy, Anthony Kramer, a fanatic former Bund member. Werner had already given him a money belt with $4,000 for safekeeping. Curling talked with both men until 10 and then left to meet his wife. FBI agents allowed him to leave the vicinity of the bar and then arrested him, tossing Curling into the backseat of a car that quickly sped towards a downtown federal office. Not wanting to alert Kramer and hoping he might lead them to additional suspects, agents still watching the two men waited until the two Nazis parted company and then arrested Teal, taking him downtown as well for interrogation. The only reason Herbie Haupt was still walking the streets was because the FBI knew that Neubauer was also in Chicago and they wanted Herbie to lead them to him. Neubauer had been smart enough to steer clear of his Chicago relatives, including his father-in-law. He did look up some old friends of his wife, a couple by the name of Harry and Emma Jacques, who barely knew of him and were quite skeptical until he showed them scars from war wounds his wife had written to them about and asked them to hold on to $3,600 in cash. After a cordial evening in their home, he left. Neubauer had told Harry Jacques some basics of how he got to America, but his host cut him off, not wanting to even hear of it. The FBI agents tailing Haupt actually missed their chance to arrest the two on Wednesday when the two met inside a loop area movie house. By Saturday, the Bureau, thinking that Herbie, who had already picked up a new Pontiac, re-established contact with his ex, Gerda Stuckman, and a possible flight risk with his girlfriend and plenty of cash, decided that they would catch Neubauer on their own. They arrested Herbert Haupt while he was driving around central Chicago at approximately 9.30 Saturday morning. Herbie Haupt immediately coughed up the location of Herman Neubauer, probably thinking that he could claim he merely was involved in the plot to get back to America, and his cooperation would bolster his innocence of any potential plan to commit sabotage. Neubauer was arrested at his hotel and seemed practically relieved. In custody, he complained of extreme headaches, and his heartbeat was exceeding 125 beats a minute. As soon as J. Edgar Hoover got word that all eight saboteurs were in custody, he telephoned the White House and followed up with a memo. In this memo, he not only omitted Dash's role, he falsified Dash's date of apprehension to four days later to make it appear that Dash was caught by the FBI, and Hoover omitted any mention of the German saboteur turning himself in. Although George Dash still had visions of exoneration based on his cooperation, Hoover had no intention of differentiating between him and the other saboteurs. In fact, Hoover considered it of critical importance to silence Dash so that the actual story of how the eight men were apprehended never reached the public. But Hoover did not want to alienate Dash just yet. There was still plenty of intelligence to glean, including military information concerning U-boats and even the Enigma coding machine that Dash had observed. Privately, Dash was told by trainer and other Justice Department personnel that if he pled guilty, no testimony would be required, and when things died down, he would eventually be pardoned. But he was told that this was for his own good, as any news of his cooperation would eventually become known by the German government. 
When Dash was subsequently taken to New York and placed in solitary confinement, he was quite unhappy. It was explained that the FBI did not want his fellow saboteurs to figure out that he had actually turned them in. Although he was led to believe that the FBI would make a distinction between him and the other saboteurs, this was a ruse to keep Dash talking and cooperative. In anticipation of the arrest of Haupt and Neubauer, Director Hoover had already moved a large contingent of FBI personnel to New York to choreograph the news conference that announced news of the arrest to the nation. At 8.30 p.m. Saturday, only hours after the arrest of Neubauer, Hoover began a press conference to publicly announce the arrest of the eight Germans. Hoover focused on the FBI's role in the case, hinted that it was specific investigation and effort that led to the arrests. There was no mention of Dash's interaction on Amagansett Beach, and certainly no information about Dash initially contacting the FBI on his own. Any specific questions about the investigation were deflected, and in the coming days, Hoover's friends in the media, like Walter Winchell, dramatized the Bureau's role into, quote, the most exciting achievement yet of John Edgar Hoover's G-Men, unquote. Hoover's announcement induced screaming headlines about Nazi spies, deadly sabotage avoided, and pronouncements praising the FBI as the government agency that saved America newsprint that generated universal public enthusiasm. Even the New York Times printed a front-page story with type typically reserved for major events. However, many government officials, especially within the Coast Guard, military intelligence, and even the Secret Service who would trace the bills given to John Cullen, were angry over Hoover's typical grandstanding. Some had not even been notified of the arrests and read about the events in the newspaper. Biddle, the attorney general and Hoover's literal boss, was aware of the director's aggrandizement and eventually FDR himself would become irritated when he learned the true facts of the investigation. Ultimately, the president came to believe that if the German government decided that their mission was discovered by the vigilance of the U.S. military and the FBI, they would be reluctant to try such missions in the future. Privately, Roosevelt was concerned that the eastern coastline was vulnerable and hoped to maintain an illusion of impregnability. Roosevelt was also adamant about another aspect of the case. To Biddle, he insisted that the saboteurs would be tried by a military tribunal and not a civilian court, where there was a chance that they could only be charged with minor crimes. He even said that he would ignore any court order that contradicted him. He made his expected outcome clear in a conversation with an aide well advance of a trial when he half-jokingly asked whether or not the saboteurs should be shot or hanged. Biddle was also enthusiastic about prosecuting the case himself, afraid that any decent defense lawyer for the Nazis would attempt to get the case into the civilian courts, a legal issue that would probably wind up in front of the Supreme Court. Biddle did not want a military legal official with zero Supreme Court appellate experience handling that process. The wheels of justice turned very quickly for the eight Germans. Attorneys were appointed to handle their defense at a trial, now scheduled to begin in Washington, in July, only days away. Kenneth Royal and Cassius Dowell received the unfortunate designation as advocates for some of the most unpopular defendants in American history. Eventually, it was decided that because Dash had come forward on his own, his defense should be handled by separate counsel to avoid a conflict. Without much notice, an army attorney named Carl Rustine received this dubious assignment. By now, Dash realized that he would never be allowed to merely go free. His repeated suggestions concerning American propaganda repeatedly ignored. The harsh reality of his situation kicked in when he saw his picture on the cover of an American tabloid, referring to him as a captured Nazi spy. He figured his only chance to set the record straight would be to testify on his behalf. With eight defendants captured on U.S. soil in civilian clothes, admittedly foreign nationals delivered to American shores by U-boat with explosives and cash by a country involved in a declared war against the United States, legal counsel understood that their client's conviction by the military tribunal was a certainty. Royal and Dow realized that their only hope to lessen the punishment meted out to the saboteurs was getting the Supreme Court to order a trial in a civilian court. As it was FDR who had officially proclaimed that the matter was to be handled by a military court, attorneys Royal and Dow then sent a letter directly to the president asking him to waive the restriction on appealing to the civilian courts. 
Upon the advice of Biddle, Roosevelt decided not to respond. His initial inclination was to forbid such an appeal, but Biddle advised that this might give the appearance of an unfair trial that might precipitate an eventual demand for judicial review. Royal and Dow then followed up with another letter, this time stating that unless they were forbidden to do so, they would pursue remedies through the civilian court system. Dash would later claim that he was quite dismayed at the timid performance of his attorney, Carl Ristine, typified by Ristine's refusal to ask for similar relief. All eight saboteurs were transported by train to D.C. from New York, but not before Hoover observed some of the spies and actually met with Berger for 10 minutes in his cell. Berger had cooperated with the FBI and even returned with some agents to Amagansett Beach, and Hoover may have meant to assess his demeanor and potential use as a favorable witness in any future court proceedings. The director completely ignored Dash, understanding that he was upset with what he felt were broken promises. Although defense counsel was pursuing external appeals, the military tribunal was convened promptly at 10 a.m. on July 8th. The defendants transported to the Justice Department building conference room from their cells at the District of Columbia Jail. This daily transport through the streets of the Capitol in a column including army trucks, motorcycles, vans containing the handcuffed saboteurs, bristling with machine gun toting soldiers standing on the running boards was viewed by hundreds of civilians lining the streets. Although the prisoners were only allowed to wear pajamas in their cells, they were allowed to dress up in some of the fine clothing purchased during their time in Chicago and New York. The tribunal consisted of seven generals, the chairman, Major General Frank McCoy. The use of a military tribunal to handle such matters was not unprecedented. The most famous example, the prosecution of defendants involved in the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, which resulted in the execution of, among others, Mary Surratt, the first female ever executed by the U.S. government. But Royal immediately challenged the legality of the tribunal under the legal precedent of the case known as Ex Parte Milligan. Lambden Milligan was a native of Indiana, political activist, and ardent opponent of the federal government's attempt to stop the secession of southern states from the Union. In late 1864, he was suspected of planning armed opposition to Union troops stationed in Indiana, and he and a group of conspirators were arrested by military authorities. Four individuals, including Milligan, were brought before a military tribunal, convicted of various acts of treason and sedition, and sentenced to death. Ultimately, the Supreme Court heard Milligan's appeal and ruled in his favor, establishing the precedent that as long as civilian courts were functioning and civil authority had not been eradicated, a defendant had the right to a trial in a civilian court. Milligan, by then his death sentence commuted to life imprisonment by President Andrew Johnson, was released from prison on April 12, 1866, almost two years after his initial arrest. Royal knew how McCoy would probably rule, but he was already laying the groundwork for an appeal to the Supreme Court. After some legal back and forth, McCoy called a brief recess and then reconvened, quickly overruling Royal's objection. The first witness called to the stand by the prosecution was John Cullen, who promptly identified George Dash as the man he interacted with on the beach at Abagansett. Cullen's testimony was probably quite dramatic, but the public would not get to hear about it, Biddle demanding that the press be barred from the proceedings. Specially designated pool journalists were brought in during a break to observe the defendants, and photos taken by military staff were provided, but as to the specifics of the trial, no information was forthcoming. Royal quickly began to realize that some of the procedural arguments he made that might have gotten traction in a civilian court got him nowhere in the proceeding. Rules governing evidence, confessions, and even hearsay that were followed strictly in a court of law could be ignored by the tribunal. America in the summer of 1942 was on a practically paranoid edge over the course of the war and the previous six months of military setbacks, especially in the Pacific. Although the recently concluded Battle of Midway was a decisive turning point in the conflict, no one grasped that at the time, and Hitler's panzer divisions were again speeding through southern Russia and across North Africa. The U.S. was seemingly an island unto itself, secure only because of its sheer distance from Europe and Japan. This paranoia reached the highest levels of the government, 
intent on forcefully dealing with even a hint of treasonous behavior on the home front. In mid-July, any individuals who had interacted with the eight saboteurs were arrested. This included most of Herbie Haupt's relatives, including his parents, Curling's girlfriend, Hetty Engeman, Helmut Liner, Herman Fay, Teal's old bun buddy, Anthony Kramer, Marie Curling, who hadn't even seen her husband, and even Mr. and Mrs. Jacques, who didn't even know Neubauer, but merely agreed to hold on to his cash. Their arrests began a judicial odyssey that exposed most of them to a harrowing level of vindictive prosecution by a vengeful government. It only took two weeks for Biddle to put on the prosecution's case, consisting mostly of reading the defendant's confessions into the record, expert testimony on the explosives and their lethal capability, and FBI agent accounts of their pursuit and arrest of the saboteurs. Agent Trainer's testimony concerning Dash's erratic behavior and reluctance to reveal information did not paint a sympathetic picture. The defense consisted mostly of the saboteurs trying to convince the tribunal that they had no intention of fulfilling any part of their mission. Herbie Haupt was especially specific about his real intent of reestablishing ties to his girlfriend. Ultimately getting married and taking a honeymoon in his new car bought especially for that purpose. Most of the others claimed to be victims of circumstance, having no idea of what ultimately Cap was recruiting them for and feeling they couldn't refuse the assignment once it was revealed to them. The tribunal skepticism was underlined by McCoy asking a series of questions of Quirin that asked about chain of command and what he would have done if Dash asked him to commit sabotage. Quirin's ambivalent responses were not very convincing. It was agreed among the defense that Berger was probably the strongest witness, so Dash testified before him. Ristine did a reasonably good job of portraying Dash as intending to scuttle the mission as far back as during training, and made it clear that Dash voluntarily walked into FBI headquarters when the FBI had no idea where he or any of the saboteurs were. Berger's testimony underlined both his hostility to the Nazi government based on the dreadful treatment of both him and his wife and his efforts to sabotage the mission by leaving cigarettes, a bottle of brandy, and clothing on the beach to attract the Coast Guard to the explosives. He also revealed Dash's loss of his identification papers, the team leader's arbitrary approach to orders, and a general incompetence that underlined that the mission was a farce with no chance of ever succeeding. As far as the tribunal... Royal did the best that he could with the cards he was dealt. He was pursuing an appeal to the Supreme Court that was hindered by the justice's summer vacation. The only justice in town, Hugo Black, once he heard that Royal wanted to discuss judicial relief for the Nazi spies, refused to even discuss the matter. Royal was unable to reach anyone else until Justice Owen Roberts had to return to the Capitol for a funeral. Royal was able to not only speak with Roberts in his chambers, but also get him to speak with his colleagues about taking up the case. The justice even invited him to his Pennsylvania vacation home to present the legal basis of his appeal. Biddle would also be present to offer a rebuttal to Royal's request. On July 23rd, both men arrived at Roberts's farm, conveyed by military plane and an FBI-driven automobile. Clearly, Roberts was sympathetic to Royal's Milligan-related objections, or he wouldn't have resorted to such an unprecedented process. He told Biddle and Royal to take a walk around the grounds for a few minutes while a decision was reached. When they returned, they were informed by Roberts that the court had agreed to suspend its summer recess for the first time in 22 years. Arguments related to the saboteur's case would be heard in Washington by the Supreme Court on Wednesday, July 29th. Royal filed a writ of habeas corpus for all of the saboteurs except Dash, who he did not represent, Ristine again not wanting to participate. If granted, the seven spies would be remanded to a civilian court, denying the tribunal's legal authority. This was exactly the scenario President Roosevelt had discussed with Biddle before the trial even started. News of the court's involvement was another remarkable twist in the sensational case. Among its current justices were some of the most respected legal minds in American judicial history, including the aforementioned Black, Felix Frankfurter, William O. Douglas, and eventual Nuremberg prosecutor Robert Jackson. Its current Chief Justice, Harlan Fisk Stone, was a former longtime Associate Justice and the former Attorney General of the United States. The remarkable hearing was jammed with spectators and government officials, including J. Edgar Hoover himself. 
but the gravitas of the participants did not indicate that they were philosophically aligned. Frankfurter was openly derisive of the legal tendencies of the liberal contingent of the court that included Black, Douglas, and Frank Murphy. This perspective was underlined when Frankfurter successfully got Murphy to withdraw from the case as the latter justice had recently accepted a commission in the Army, a participant in the case. Douglas was en route from the West Coast, so the hearing would proceed with seven justices. For two days, Royal and Biddle presented their arguments and responded to the justices, the questions wide-ranging and thoughtful. The Supreme Court was adjourned and the military tribunal continued on Friday, July 31st for closing arguments. Royal was in the midst of his response to the prosecution's demand for a guilty verdict and death sentence when word was received that the Supreme Court was about to issue its ruling. A recess was called and those who were able made their way to the Supreme Court to hear a very unusual decision. The judges had agreed that unanimity was important and in a time of war undercutting the military and the president was a reckless course of action. But they did not want to contradict the legal doctrine of ex parte Milligan, and they were not completely in agreement. So as a kind of compromise, they issued what is known as a per curiam decision, a ruling issued by the majority, and in this case unanimously, stating that the tribunal was lawfully assembled and the defendants were lawfully held. Eventually problematic, no opinions or precedents were cited, expedient for the current situation, but ultimately controversial. Royal and Rustine were now left with the prospect of attempting to at least avoid eventual tribunal death sentences for some or all of the defendants. Both men made very compelling closing statements, especially concerning Dash and Berger. Their intention to avoid carrying out their mission made obvious by their literal attempts to sabotage Operation Pastorius from the very moment they landed on Long Island. Following a rebuttal by the prosecution, McCoy gaveled the proceedings to a close on the afternoon of Saturday, August 1st, 1942. After reaching a verdict, the tribunal would forward it to the president. By the end of the weekend, FDR had a transcript of the lengthy trial and the verdicts. Predictably, all eight men were found guilty and sentenced to death. However, in light of their cooperation with the FBI, it was recommended that Dash's sentence be reduced to 30 years and Burgers to life imprisonment with hard labor. No such clemency was suggested for the other six. Although the president personally told the press that he would not make a final decision until the end of the week, he already had decided to agree with the tribunal's recommendations. He had previously spoken with Biddle about Dash and Berger and was aware of their attempts to scuttle the mission. However, there would be no public announcement to either the press or the public until after the executions were carried out. And even more unfortunately for the six condemned, they would not die by either hanging or firing squad, as FDR had earlier discussed, but instead by electrocution in the District of Columbia's electric chair, conveniently located in the very jail where they were confined. Because technically the military had conducted the tribunal and sentenced the defendants, the military was responsible for carrying out the sentences. The provost marshal for the District of Columbia, Brigadier General Albert Cox, essentially the highest-ranking military law enforcement official in Washington, D.C., was placed in charge of the execution procedure. Although the exact sentences were not yet official, it was common knowledge that some of the defendants would be electrocuted. The general spent the rest of the week lining up the necessary personnel to handle one of the largest executions ever imposed by the U.S. government. It was not until Friday evening that an aide to FDR called Cox with an order that came directly from the president. The six condemned saboteurs were to, quote, suffer death by electrocution, unquote, and that this execution should take place at noon on the following day, Saturday, August 8th. The convicted saboteurs also had no idea of their eventual punishment, but most expected the worst. In their cells, they spent most of their time composing letters to various relatives and friends, poignant notes containing emotions including sadness, apology, and regret. Edward Curling wrote to both his wife and Hetty Engerman. He told Marie Curling, When I have to go on my last walk, I'll think of you, my Marie. This means the end of my life. We have to part. I know you can't grasp that, neither can I. To Hetty Engerman, so it is all over now. Remember me as you have known me in happier days. Forget the tragic end. 
He also wrote Helmut Liner asking forgiveness for involving him in the incident. Herbie Haupt wrote to Goethe Stuckman, also apologizing and stating that the only reason he returned to the U.S. was to win back her love and repair the damage he had done to her and her family. To his American wife, who would now face life in Germany alone, Hermann Neubauer wrote, If it only would not hurt so much, it would not be so hard. But I shall try to be brave and take it as a soldier. So, my Alma, chin up, because I want you to. Be good and goodbye until we may meet in a better world. May God bless you. Although most of the men acknowledged that their mission was futile and improbable from the very beginning, several still professed their faith in ultimate German victory, and even Hitler himself. To his wife, Neubauer also wrote, I and my comrades are dying for you and for Germany. I know that our Führer will bring Germany to victory. Curling was considered by even the other saboteurs as the most enthusiastic Nazi. Even at this late hour, he still signed many of his letters with a closing of Heil Hitler. Probably Richard Quarren best summed up the strange twists and circumstances that had brought this utterly ordinary group together to participate in such a bizarre and extraordinary experience. With his wife and 20-month-old daughter in mind, he wrote to a friend, Just at the time that when my life started to look bright for me with my little girl and all, I was approached by these men, and I couldn't say no. I think that fate meant this for me. With only hours to prepare the prisoners for their execution, Cox arrived at the D.C. jail at dawn on Saturday morning. He organized a group of six chaplains and entered the cells of the saboteurs, to each condemned man, he quickly left the cell after informing them of their fate, a chaplain remaining behind to provide comfort. Despite news that they had been spared, neither Dash or Berger expressed any feeling of relief. Dash began excitedly jabbering at Cox, who waved him off, and Berger merely looked up from a magazine to briefly respond, Yes, sir, before returning to his reading. The condemned were given pencil and paper for any last words to loved ones, and several feverishly jotted down a final note. Instead of writing, Herbie Haupt asked that his diamond ring be given to Gerda Stuckman and that a chaplain communicate with his parents to reassure them of his love, not to be too upset over what had happened to him, and that his final moments were spent thinking of his mother. The six then, in their individual cells, had their heads and a thigh shaved and were fed a final meal of bacon and eggs. At 10 a.m. they were escorted, one at a time, to a separate wing of the prison, to cells adjoining the room where the electric chair sat behind a thick iron door. The men were flanked by two guards and accompanied by a chaplain, two other guards following up with a stretcher in the event that a prisoner fainted or even resisted. This precaution was unnecessary, all six men walking directly to their final cubicle on death row. Dash and Berger were already in the prison exercise yard, Unaware of the proceedings, here they would remain until the conclusion of the executions. Promptly at noon, the first condemned man was led into the execution chamber. As the process was to proceed by alphabetical order, Haupt was the first to be executed. A reckless journey that started with juvenile carelessness was now about to conclude with the most painfully fatal consequences. Guards placed him in the chair, the four executioners rapidly securing him with belts that restrained his arms, waist, legs, and jaw to the oak chair. A flexible mask that covered up all but his mouth and nose was placed over his head. A metal skull cap was then lowered onto Haupt's shaved head, a moist sponge included to ensure maximum conductivity, as well as another device clasped to Haupt's leg, a wet sponge also inserted. Electric cables were then connected to both the cap and leg devices. It took merely two minutes to complete the process, the four executioners then exiting the room. As witnesses observed through a one-way window, Haupt was then administered 2,000 volts of electricity. He convulsed briefly, and then his body ultimately relaxed as electricity continued to course through him for several minutes. Eventually, the current was shut off, and the coroner entered and declared the prisoner dead, at 12.11 p.m., the corpse quickly removed and transported to the prison basement. Herbert Haupt was 22 years old. In succession, Heink, Curling, Neubauer, Quirin, and Teal all underwent the same process. At 1.04, the last man was pronounced dead. By 1.27, a public statement was released by the White House, stating that six of the saboteurs had been executed, 
Two had received prison terms and that the tribunal proceedings were to be sealed until the end of the war. The large crowd of press and the public waiting outside of the hospital had already dispersed after a lengthy procession of ambulances left the prison, intent on the morgue at Walter Reed Hospital. Franklin D. Roosevelt had specifically decided how to handle the remains of the executed saboteurs, intending that the bodies of the men be made to virtually disappear to avoid any subsequent notoriety. Days later, the bodies were placed in plain pine boxes, trucked to a remote southeast corner of the city known as the Blue Plains, and buried in a pauper cemetery, their graves marked merely with wooden slats numbered from 276 to 281. A six-foot-high fence was then installed to deter anyone who might have stumbled upon this location. When Dash and Berger were recalled from the yard and walked by the six empty cells of their former comrades, they knew what had happened. They were quickly transported to the federal penitentiary at Danbury, Connecticut. Back in Germany, news of the utter failure of the mission had circulated among the Nazi high command as early as late June. Detailed American reports left no doubt that all eight men were rounded up. Canaris and Lahausen were forced to go to the Wolf's Lair in East Prussia to be subjected to an outraged Adolf Hitler, accusing them of bungling an operation that was now a huge American propaganda opportunity. Canaris attempted to deflect responsibility by claiming that the saboteurs were not actually trained intelligence agents, but merely party members selected based on their loyalty. That only enraged Hitler even more. This was one of several incidents that compelled an alienated and suspicious Hitler to marginalize Canaris and the Abwehr and assign his responsibilities to Henrik Himmler. Canaris was executed in the last days of the war after his resistance movement was discovered by the Gestapo. Lahausen only escaped by his assignment to the Russian front in 1943. He eventually testified for the prosecution at the Nuremberg trials. After the conclusion of the military tribunal, other Operation Pastorius-related defendants were prosecuted. In October of 1942, Haupt's parents, his uncle and aunt, and his friend Wolfgang Worgen's parents, who Herbie met with repeatedly while on the loose, were all placed on trial for treason. Berger appearing as a star witness for the prosecution. Convicted, the three male defendants were sentenced to death the women to 25 years and $10,000 fines, the judge William Campbell nationally lauded for his harsh punishment. A federal appeals court tossed out the verdicts, and only one defendant, Hans Haupt, Herbie's father was retried, convicted again, and then sentenced to life in prison. His sentence was commuted, and he was deported to Germany, his wife already having been deported in 1946. The other women were released, but their husbands had to eventually plead guilty and received prison sentences. Herbie Haupt's companion on his misguided global adventure, Wolfgang Wurgen, was predictably conscripted into the German army, despite American citizenship. Sent to the Russian front in 1941 after being wounded, he was eventually sent to France in 1944, where he managed to be taken prisoner. Unfortunately, his naturalized citizenship was canceled by his German military service, and he was not allowed to return to the United States. Instead, he moved to Colombia and lived there until 1956, when he was able to finally come back to America and regain his citizenship in 1962. His parents also eventually returned to the U.S. Because Marie Curling never interacted with her husband, charges were eventually dropped against her, although she was interned for the rest of the war and probably deported. Hetty Engeman was convicted of the flimsy crime of misprison of treason and was sent to prison until mid-1945. Anthony Kramer initially got a 45-year jail sentence for treason after merely meeting Teal and Curling in a bar and agreeing to store some cash. His conviction was eventually tossed, and then Kramer plea bargained a nine-year sentence for the charge of, quote, trading with the enemy. Herman Fay caught a five-year sentence for the same crime. Gerda Stuckman quickly moved on from Herbie Haupt, married soon after his execution, and raised a family. Although the child Herbert Haupt fathered with her supposedly died shortly after its birth, it is believed that Gerda actually gave it up for adoption, although this still remains one of the unsolved mysteries of Operation Pastorius. The Jacques, who merely agreed to hold on to some of Hermann Neubauer's money, were never charged, but they were also deported to Germany.
the fate of Alma Neubauer, the American wife left behind in Germany by Hermann Neubauer, is unknown. Typically, U-boat commander Hans Heinz Linder did not survive the war. He was killed in a Soviet air raid on the coast of Latvia in September of 1944. U-584, which safely deposited the four saboteurs in Florida, was sunk on October 31, 1943, in the North Atlantic by American fighter bombers. All 51 aboard, including Captain Joachim Dika, perished. Operation Pastorius was not the final attempt to land German spies in America. In late November 1944, anxious to find out more information about the viability of the Manhattan Project to build an atomic bomb, a legitimate Nazi intelligence agent, Eric Gimpel, and an American defector, William Kolpow, were deposited on a remote part of the Maine coastline near Bar Harbor. They successfully made their way to Manhattan, but Kolpow decided to abandon Gimpel and the mission going off on an alcoholic binge for several weeks before turning himself in. Gimpel was arrested shortly thereafter. Both men were also sentenced to death, but had their sentences commuted by Harry Truman and eventually emerged from prison. One individual the U.S. government never caught up with was Walter Capp. The American government attempted to locate him briefly after the war, but he eluded detection, eventually working as an obscure Union official and ultimately running a souvenir stand outside of a U.S. Army base in Frankfurt, where he died in 1958. Ex parte Quirin would have remained a case of interest only familiar to history buffs and law school students had it not been for the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks. The Bush administration claimed that it had the legal right to place on trial any al-Qaeda terrorist detainees in front of a military tribunal, and the government relied chiefly on ex parte Quirin to establish this right. As hundreds of prisoners languished in Guantanamo Bay, litigation would again revolve around how the executive branch handled sabotage and terrorism during wartime. By 2001, Ernest Berger and George Dash were long gone. Both were abruptly released from federal prison without explanation in March of 1948 on the condition that they be deported. Dash's wife, who still remained married to the disgraced saboteur, was not even notified of her husband's release and expulsion. Berger essentially disappeared from public view, although it is known that he remained in Germany and worked in several positions and died of a heart attack in 1975. He never relocated his wife, who disappeared after the war. While Berger had the good sense to keep a low profile, Dash was predictably vocal and did not hide his identity or stop claiming that he was owed a pardon from the U.S. government. Although his wife rejoined him in Germany, she eventually returned to the U.S., ostensibly to better be able to seek a pardon from the U.S. government, but possibly to separate from her husband, who stayed in Germany. By then, Dash had already lost several jobs and businesses when media about Operation Pastorius revealed Dash's identity and location and rekindled public hostility. Most Germans believed Dash to be a traitor who was responsible for the betrayal and execution of his comrades. Dash eventually went so far as traveling to East Berlin and offering his services to the East German and Russian governments as a Cold War propaganda symbol of American mistreatment. Both governments wanted no part of him, eventually kicking him out of East Berlin. After a 1959 self-aggrandizing memoir about his life and his version of what happened in the United States was published, Dash slipped into obscurity. He spent his time attempting to earn enough money to merely survive. George Dash, aged 89, died in Ludwigshaven in 1992. He repeatedly petitioned the U.S. government, demanding what he claimed he was promised by the FBI, waiting for a pardon right up until his final days. It never came. In 1967, the Blue Plains Pauper Cemetery and Burial Place of the six executed Nazi saboteurs was officially closed and any markers or debris removed. Over time, the untended area has become overgrown and unkempt, populated with knee-high vegetation and tall scrub brush. As Franklin D. Roosevelt intended, today, the location of the graves of Herbert Haupt, Richard Quirin, Henrik Hank, Herman Neubauer, Edward Curling, and Werner Thiel is completely unknown.
Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about George Dash. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Saboteurs, The Nazi Raid on America by Michael Dobbs, Betrayal, The True Story of J. Edgar Hoover and the Nazi Saboteurs Captured During World War II by David Allen Jackson, Eight Spies Against America by George Dash, and They Came to Kill by Eugene Rackless. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Music